Welcome to the Jonathan underscore Foster podcast, a series of audio recording files where Jonathan engages with questions and concepts through the lens of Renéci Ard's mimetic theory and open and relational theology. This podcast is brought to you by, well, it's brought to you by Jonathan. Who else would be bringing this to you? Frosted Flakes, the U.S. military. You think focus on the family wants to be associated with Dr. J? No, none of those people want to be connected to this dude. Don't forget to like the show, leave a review, and most importantly, sign up for Jonathan's newsletter at jonathanfosteronline.com. All right. Thank you, Marcus. Appreciate it. How you doing, man? I'm good. That's good. You know what? You do a really good job with this. I appreciate it. Thank you. Bro, I feel like I was put in this world to do this. It's really strange. <laughs> it is really strange that you would even say that. Uh, yeah, we should all be so lucky be able to know exactly what we're good at and to do it. All right, everyone, welcome back to, I think this is probably about episode four or so. Um, it's going to be a good one. Later on, I'm going to introduce my friend, Tim Suttle. Tim is an author and an intellectual and a pastor. If you're not aware of his book, Shrink, especially if you're a faith community leader of any type, I highly encourage you to read Shrink and be aware of his writing. I'll put some of his links in the show notes, but also, you know how it goes by now. I'm going to have an extended conversation with Tim about our topic for today on my Patreon page. So you'll have to go there, patreon.com forward slash Jonathan underscore Foster to get access to my, uh, what do you call it? Exclusive. That's what it is. My exclusive talk with Tim. So today we're going to talk about everyone's favorite word, at least in the church circles I've been in the last few years. That's right. Wait for it. We're talking about deconstruction. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty excited about that, aren't you? Deconstruct. Okay, seriously. Let's talk about deconstruction now. Deconstruction, as it's used colloquially, is slightly different than how it's used in a philosophical sense. So in everyday language, in my circles, it's, ba it's basically used to talk about changing one's mind, like in particular as it pertains to people moving from a more rigid and fundamentalist-leaning Christianity to something less rigid and fundamentalist. So most of the time, it's simply used to encapsulate that process of movement from one kind of faith system to another. Philosophically, deconstruction is a bit more nuanced because that's what philosophers do. Not that most people in American Christianity care about nuance or philosophy for that matter, Hey, you've probably heard about the best way to get away from philosophers, right? Yeah, just go ahead and pay your Uber Eats guy. That'll get rid of him. I literally just made that joke up. Because I have been an Uber Eats guy, so... And I have been a philosopher. So I know this real well. Man, I'm hilarious. 
So, uh, yes, nuanced in that deconstruction is more than just taking things apart. It's about seeing the contradiction inside structural fault lines. Jacques Derrida, he's this famous French guy for bringing deconstruction into the mainstream. In one of his more well-known essays, he deconstructs Socrates' criticism of the written word, pointing out that his ideas come to us only through the written word. I hope you can see by that example the kind of irony, that contradiction that lies within the structural fault line of uh, the whole process of deconstruction. When I invited the Church of the Nazarene, for example, to adopt a more gracious posture towards LGBTQ plus human beings, I was really just pointing out the contradiction inherent within a group that says they believe in grace, but how they refuse to give grace. Really what that was, was a, was, was an inconsistency buried deep within the fault lines of that structure. So these things, I'm trying to say, they're just a bit more nuanced than smashing stuff right and left. It's emphasizing that the constructs themselves are hiding some inconsistency. And here's the important point for me. Inconsistency, it's like a trail in a forest. If you follow it, eventually it'll lead you to discover that something's off. And then if you follow that, eventually you'll find an injustice. And this is, of course, the reason the church in general doesn't like deconstruction. They're not interested in everyday, ordinary people following trails that lead them to find out the structural injustices that lay deep within the fault lines of their organization. Does anyone see this playing out with the uh, SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention right now? I think so. So this is an important distinction between just finding faults with people and recognizing an unjust, contradictory, structural evil. So to deconstruct is to find that and to pull apart that construct. And while it's not exactly fun to be in the middle of it or even be close to people who are in the middle of it, it's desperately needed because what American Christianity is really bad at is recognizing collective evil, collective sins. Now, we're amazing at talking about personal sin. Actually, we're amazing at talking about anything that has to do with personal or the individual. But structural stuff, man, we're not good at that. I personally think that one of the reasons has to do with our unflagging commitment to capital O omnipotence. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Yeah, I'm going to deconstruct that in just a moment. So in general, I want to say that if you find something is feeling off or making your body react or giving you pause, yeah, slow down. Ask questions. Don't be afraid to follow the trail of inconsistency. Nothing makes me quite so irritated as to listen to a preacher or an author, or in the case of the book I read last night, both, who acts like hurt or mad or irritated or shocked that people would question systemic issues. Now, I totally get a pastor being hurt or mad or frustrated when people are just randomly pulling down, down stuff right or left or doing what people do a lot when they come to a church and then they project all of their own garbage onto the pastor or onto the leaders and those kinds of things because that just demonstrates that, you know, the person sitting in the pew, so to speak, has just not done their own self-care and their own work. And that can get really, really old because as a pastor, you have to put up with that a lot. But I'm not talking about that kind of stuff. 
I'm talking more about when a author or a pastor type who has a responsibility to help other people create meaning in their lives, when they come across in domineering, really strong ways, and I I know some of this has to do with personality. It's not just what they write. And frankly, people have accused me of having, you know, a strong personality. So I hold all of this intention, but I struggle when I read things or hear things from people who I know who have, you know, deconstructed their own theology and ecclesiology and come up with some new things who then are landing so strong on the new things that they're not creating room or space for others to come up with their new thing. A common thing that is said, which I absolutely think is true, so I think it needs to be said, is that, hey, Christianity isn't a individual thing. It's a collective thing. If you just try to interpret it individually, you know, it's a recipe for disaster. And that's true. But what is also true and what always has to be said along with that idea is that not paying attention to the individual is a recipe for disaster too. So you, you kind of pick your poison. If you don't listen to the group altogether, you kind of can go off in your own way, which is a problem. But if you only listen to the group, then your own ways, ideas, body, mind, heart, soul can be squashed and squelched. And that's not good either. So I think at the very least, what we want to say is, yeah, deconstruction is flammable. Be careful with it. But not deconstructing is also a problem. So we have to figure out healthy ways to move forward in all of this. So recently I've had more than one person ask me about deconstruction. Deconstruction as it pertains to reading the Bible and to prayer. I'm going to talk about those in a moment. Um, but also just like this general pose of, well, I've deconstructed, so now what? What's on the other side? And first off, what I want to say is, um, I guess my response is something like, deconstructed, deconstructing isn't just like a one-time thing necessarily. This isn't just pulling stuff apart, changing out one part for another part. This is being aware, having your ear to the ground, so to speak, towards this thing about the contradictions that exist in the folds of institutionalized thinking. And therefore, it's, it's something that probably doesn't ever quite stop. Moreover, because we're a linguistic people, and now, of course, I'm thinking back to that previous and wildly popular episode on, was it the one on meaning-making or relationships where we talked about metonymy, how that's a word that begins to encapsulate, encapsulate this whole problem of how words are defined by other words, which is great until you turn to the other words and you realize that those words are defined by even more words. After a while, what you realize is that things aren't completely stable because of all of this, because we are meaning-making creatures that use language. And because of the reality of metonymy, stuff isn't entirely stable. So deconstruction's always, always kind of going on. I don't know. Is this helpful? Marcus, do you think this is helpful? Well, how deep you planning to go? Well, I don't think it's that deep. Bro, it's your show. I know, true. It's just like you don't win with this topic. You go too far one direction and everyone in the church accuses you of being an alarmist. If you go too far the other direction, people outside the church accuse you of like defending a system of patriarchy or xenophobia or something. It sucks to be you. <laughs> yes, it does. Well, I've been wondering how deconstruction hit Renee Sheard. 
All right, yeah, that's a good question. Thanks for bringing that up. It's really very interesting because Girard was actually right in the middle of the era when the French intellectual ideas of deconstruction famously or infamously hit America. And as these things tend to go, there were a lot of events and papers and talks responsible, but none more important than a colloquium held at Johns Hopkins in the late 60s. It turned out it kind of served as the fuse that was lit by the presentation given by a young French intellectual by the name of Jacques Derrida. Or maybe the event itself was the lighting and Derrida was the fuse. I don't know. Either way, it's hard to overestimate what took place that week. And I didn't even realize this part until recently. Girard was one of the three organizers of this event. So he experienced firsthand the whole introduction into the world of Derrida that highlighted the problem of linguistics and meaning making and how words subvert other words. It appears as though it was a wildfire of an event that wound up spreading across the entire Western world. Generally, Girard wasn't a fan of deconstruction, but I do think it's a bit complicated. First of all, his work does come out of linguistic some, certainly out of the world of literature. It's there where he would have recognized the problem that language presents to all of us. And it also appears he was a fan of Derrida's intellect, or at least he knew he had a formidable mind. And this seems obvious to say based on the number of occasions that Girard uh, wound up referencing Derrida's essay, Plato's Pharmacy. A lot of that writing influenced Girard's own thoughts. However, Girard seemed to always be suspicious of deconstruction. Maybe that at its essence, it really didn't lead anywhere meaningful at all. If everyone gets to make up their own version of history, then there's no real history to learn from. Girard definitely thought there were real things, real ideas, real historical events that we can learn from and build off of. And so he took exception to the way Derrida's writing so quickly dismissed all that went before with a new type of writing that was frankly at times really difficult to understand. And of course this is true of philosophy in general. Philosophers love to obfuscate. That's a great word, isn't it? Obfuscate. It means, oh, like unintelligible, to render things obscure. That's to obfuscate. Philosophers are great at it. And in part, it's kind of like nice in that it's a built-in way that philosophers can pretend, or maybe in some places it's not pretend, but it's a built-in way they can be humble and say, you know, this is what I think, but in the end, maybe it's not true. So that's not bad. But unfortunately, a lot of times it's just plain old hubris. It's intentionally trying to be unclear in order to be cool or look, I don't know, what's the word, maybe coy? which is like where one is trying to be modest, but really we all know there are deeper motivations going on. So Girard was critical of philosophy and psychodynamics in general because of all that. And just because of the way deconstruction tends to be so totalizing, like what, everything now is supposed to be subverted? I think Girard had a problem with that. And I think he had a problem, well, a lot of people also had a problem with the idea that just think about the log logic of this. Derrida and others were saying that all words are deconstructed by other words, but they were using words to say such things. So their own deconstruction can be deconstructed. Now, to be fair to Derrida, and it goes beyond our scope of this episode, later in his life, he gets into talking about justice, and I find that to be really interesting. And he begins to say things like, the only thing that's really indeconstructible is justice itself. 
And that kind of matches up well with some Christian thought, but again, that's for another time. So no, eventually, ultimately, what Gerard would have wanted to say is that you kind of have to figure out what you believe, where your faith lies, where you're going to stand, kind of like where you put your ultimate trust. But also, and now I'm really just kind of (laughs) speculating, I'm obfuscating, right? I love to do that from time to time. Uh, But Gerard was a devout Catholic, or at least he became one as his life progressed. And Gerard personally seemed to have found a kind of solid, like meaningful, ritualized, ordered, you might say, kind of faith that tended to lead him toward a pretty exclusive, rigid mindset when it came to religion sometimes. Surprising, but I think that that's somewhat accurate to say. It wasn't uncommon for him to say things like, Christianity is the only one true religion. And so I wonder sometimes, did the exclusivity thing kind of pull him in a direction where he found it impossible to lean very far into a system of thinking that subverted the exclusivity? And I go into more of this in my writing. In fact, what are the hardest things I have to do? Well, I guess I didn't have to do it. I felt compelled to do it, was to offer a critique of Girard in this way. Hard because A, Girard is such a huge intellect, obviously, B, because his thoughts have meant so much to me personally. His writing, his thinking has helped me through a lot of stuff. And C, honestly, from everything I gathered from watching videos, listening to audio, talking to people who knew him personally, he was a really gentle and gracious person, probably the opposite of who Jacques Derrida was. And in the end, I kind of think that who you are says more than anything you might write or any ideas you might postulate. It doesn't mean that you're not culpable or that you can't, that you're not supposed to take responsibility for what you've written. But I find the lived life to be the ultimate kind of thing that helps us know who you are and what you believe. Nevertheless, there are some things that I find troubling about Girard's approach. And if you're interested about it, you can read more about it toward the end of Theology of Consent. But it's about Girard's take on exclusivity, especially as it pertains to the apocalypse. And so that's where, for me, I bring in some open and relational theology. I bring that into the picture as much as possible, and it helps give me a more hopeful vision of the future, of the possibility of some hope. But I suppose I'm I'm getting beyond uh, what I was supposed to be answering for now. I'm trying to answer Marcus's question about Girard's take on deconstruction. So in a word, I just say that his take is suspiciously mixed. (laughs) I guess that's two words, isn't it? Suspiciously mixed. I will say that from my vantage point, what Girard does agree with is this general loose idea of relationship. I mean, deconstruction is built on the idea of relationship. Words are related to other words and theories are related to other theories. It's true with Girardian thinking in terms of our mimetic relationship with one another. It's certainly true with ORT relationship is one of the fundamental things of open and relational theology. And so generally speaking, the idea of relationship, it introduces this challenging notion that obviously nothing is separate from us. We're all connected. And with ORT, it even goes as far as to say, even God is connected with us. Of course, Al Whitehead, he's famous for saying, God's not the exception to reality. God is the chief exemplification. So, If God is already here, then there is no sacred other or sacred object 
to borrow from psychoanalytic thinking, which, by the way, does play a role here because people like Jacques Lacan, they were at that conference that Girard and his friends sponsored with Derrida and others in the 60s. That must have been a super interesting event. So anyhow, there, there is no outside object, what sometimes in psychoanalytics is called the sacred other, the sacred object that we need to get inside of us. It's not like there's something out there that needs to get inside of us to fill that gap, to fill that hole, because God is already in relationship with his creation. Now, this is different language. I know I'm kind of borrowing from three different traditions here, but open and relational theology says something similar. Now, of course, this doesn't work in church world. They need God to be separate. They've interpreted the story as God moving away from us, and then they've been able to slot Jesus as the one who, well, I, I guess, like, changes God's mind, right? Because as the story goes, God could have never liked us really without Jesus. According to the dominant religious story in America, unless Jesus, like a good, I guess, citizen, doesn't offer to pay our debts to the banker, who is God, then God's going to put us in jail. And we were taught to ignore the inconsistency with all of this. Hey, God was, at least according to the biblical story, was showing forgiveness before Jesus showed up. God was demonstrating love and grace and mercy before Jesus walked this earth. And then Jesus himself was the one who said he was only doing what he saw his father doing, which was to love and to forgive and to be with all people, and to desire mercy and not sacrifice. It's not as if Jesus had to change God's mind and say, hey, uh, could you be in relationship with your creation? Could you be in relationship with people? No, God has always been love. Love is relationship. So what Jesus was doing was revealing a God of relationship, that is a God of love. And I don't think most people get this wrong because they have bad intentions, because they're nefarious, because they're mean. I just think church in general created its whole language and signified a whole bunch of things that might have worked in generations past. And then they asked everyone for all time, for all future, to ignore the reality that words change and context change and that you got to believe this stuff forever. Like these are our creeds, so you believe them or else you're out. Or this is our scripture written in these words. It's the one and only. Like English, that was clearly the language that Jesus and the disciples spoke. As if no other translation or paraphrase, or for that matter, any other sacred document in the world can contain truth. A whole bunch of people now are like, come on, man, that doesn't even make sense. Words change. Contexts change. Cultures change. They signify new things. It's okay. It's not as if the pinnacle of faith is to reach some dead end. It's not as if like it's a safety deposit box theology where you get something figured out and then you lock it up and put it away for all time. No, the point is to get it out and to use it and to be free with it, to keep ourselves free, to keep God free and to enjoy this living faith.
So as we continue, I guess the point I want to make is I don't want to be an anarchist and burn everything down. But I also don't want to ignore the reality that some stuff does need to be disassembled and reassembled, made healthier. Like, here's one example. Here's, here's one concept for you. How about the idea of omnipotence? The word isn't in the Bible, but it's had a huge impact on a religious system, on our world, on our collective psyche, I think. It's more of a platonic idea, which in and of itself, I kind of don't even like to say that because actually there's some ideas that Plato had that I really liked. But the point here is that it's not something that comes from the Bible necessarily. If by omnipotence, we mean a perfect, unchanging, all-powerful being who stands out of space and time. There's a whole bunch of problems here, but for a moment, let's just stick with the perfect thing. Now, Plato's idea is that God is a perfect being that cannot change, since change would imply getting better or worse. So, I mean, if God is perfect already, then there's no changing. And if there was changing, it would imply a defective God, a weak God, an imperfect God. So the logic goes. But it's only logical, of course, if we make a couple of assumptions, like A, that it's possible to conceive of perfection without change. And B, that we then must conceive of God in this manner. Oh, and I guess here's another one, that we ignore the possibility of God being able to perfectly change. I mean, that's possible. Oh, here's another one, that we must view power in light of this inability to change, which of course leads to the painful and honestly just absurd idea that God perfectly intended for everything to be as it currently is. Imagine worshiping a God who wanted it to be as it currently is in our society. That's kind of what we have to do because as the argument goes, if God's power is perfect, then he's got every single blade of grass growing exactly as he wants. Every URL on the internet is doing exactly what it's supposed to do. Every single molecule doing precisely what it's supposed to do. Every individual circumstance is being actualized per the blueprint. Good grief. We could go on, but it's honestly, it's kind of boring. Can I just tell you that the phrase that most approximates the word, the Almighty in the Bible, and, and then the Almighty is kind of where we equate omnipotence, but that word is a mistranslation of the Hebrew phrase El Shaddai, God of the mountain, literally in Hebrew, the breasted one. Well, you can see how that was going to go over. There was no way in the testosterone-driven milieu that has been Christian theology that we were going to imagine God in such a way. Because our imaginations have been captured by those ministers of masculinity, those preachers of power, those teachers with testosterone. So much so that we've not been able to see that God, yes, is powerful, but not necessarily in a perfect, authoritative, powerful kind of way at least defining perfection in the way that Plato does. It's not a Zeus-like power. It's not a live outside of space and time so I know what's going to happen next kind of a power. It's relational power. And there's a real difference. For example, what do you find more motivating, more empowering? Someone telling you what to do or someone partnering with you to figure out ways forward? What is stronger, 
the power represented by my nation's latest nuclear-powered aircraft carrier, or the power represented by the memory of my daughter. This is the difference between authority power and relational power. And it's the kind of thing that needs to be deconstructed so that we can reconstruct into something that's healthier, more sustainable, and gives us hope for the future. American Christianity, like all imperial religions, has just bought into the wrong kind of power. It's not Thor-like, it's, well, it's Jesus-like. Of course, a whole bunch of us want to say also, look, even if God could single-handedly control things from, you know, like in the traditional omnipotent kind of way, isn't the point that it's a bit late? Isn't it a bit late for those who are at Auschwitz? Are those who were a part of the Rwandan genocide? Are those who've experienced cancer? I mean, seriously, what kind of God would this be if he had had the power all along to do something, but then didn't intervene? I mean, if I was capable of stopping my dog from getting hit by a car, I would do it. How much more so with God? What the church keeps saying over and over to me in so many different words is, well, well, it's still God. He's still in control. It's just that he has a higher plan. You know, we're not really meant to understand all this tragedy. A whole bunch of us are like, come on, man. Let's just be honest about it. That's not a higher plan. That's a bad plan. What if we could deconstruct that thought? See the contradiction in the middle of that thought. And of course, the contradiction here I'm referring to is a God who is good and omnipotent. When we define omnipotent as this perfect, unchanging deity who can do whatever he wants. All of that kind of thinking, all it does is ultimately lead to people without agency and autonomy and a real sense of injustice. So everyone could just step away from omnipotence for a bit away from perfection as this quantifiable thing, away from defining perfection as unchanging. It's one of the things I love about open and relational theology. It says God's essence doesn't change, but the way his essence interacts with creation must change. Otherwise, he wouldn't be interacting. So God's love can still be steadfast and true, but the way he loves changes, works in and out of conditions, and ultimately, it's characterized by consent. Suppose instead of thinking of God as one king at the top of a kingdom, who has the blueprints, the prints for all the buildings and all the streets in the city, we think of God as someone like Caputo said, who prowls the streets and disturbs the peace of what Kierkegaard called Christendom. Suppose instead of imagining God as a leader of an army coming against all the antagonism of the world, we imagine God being present to those upon whom the armies ride against. Worse yet, imagine when those who believe they speak on behalf of God get an army. Suppose instead of thinking of God as power, we think of him as weakness. Suppose God's weakness really is stronger than man's strength. 
Suppose capital O omnipotence is something man fabricated to validate all of his power-hungry campaigns. Suppose God is love. Suppose deconstruction brings a sword rather than peace. Who do you suppose that sounds like? about Bible and prayer briefly. There was a question or two about how young people can deconstruct the Bible-thumping approach. And what I've hoped to remind you of is that because of metonymy, you remember this idea that words can only be defined by other words, and therefore there's a very natural and fundamental movement uh, that's organized around our language, and then therefore a fundamental movement around meaning-making and humanity. Uh, that language changes things. And so a word that might mean something weighty in one generation literally cannot be weighty in the next generation. And if we can keep all of that in mind, it'll automatically reduce weaponizing the Bible. Now, it's important to note that this does not reduce the depth of wisdom found in Scripture. It still points to love. It still points to a young Hebrew who embodies love, which is the thing we can build upon. He didn't give us words. He gave us a life. So if you want to emphasize the Bible, emphasize that. Deconstruct the emphasis on equating rules with goodness. Reconstruct the emphasis on seeing Jesus in relationship with people and be in relationship with others, regardless of what they think or do or believe. Reminds me of what I wrote in The Reconstructionist, and that is that mercy is greater than sacrifice, love is greater than fear, and yes, people are greater than the rules. Therefore, your prayers will be less about God changing, controlling, making things happen, and more about asking love to help you be open to change, be open to beauty, even in situations where you don't know the outcome, especially in situations where you don't know the outcome. A love deconstruction-oriented mindset, that is that people are greater than the rules, it will automatically color your prayers and that you become aware of what the current construct is doing or has done to those who aren't a part of the system. In some ways, that's the entirety of the beauty of deconstruction. It doesn't exist to reinforce the adherence of the system. It focuses on the victim, on our victim-making machinery. Prayer isn't about getting God to do what we want him to do. I mean, think about it. If love is uncontrolling, God can't even do what he wants to do sometimes. Prayer is about putting yourself in a position to be molded and influenced. Be open to what is good and true and authentic and noble and gracious and compelling, nonviolent, non-scapegoating, non-binary. Yes, I believe the beautiful. Prayer for the deconstructed takes on a different feel. It's less about God being the answer, and it's more about God being the question. As I pray, it opens me up to ways I can get involved and become the answer to actualize the possibilities of love that I think the divine is initiating. The Bible's still useful in postmodern deconstructed settings, and prayer is still helpful, and God is still helpful, as long, I think, as it's a God of omnipresent relational love. And if you keep these things in mind, deconstruction never really stops. 
not for the sake of being destructive, but for the sake of being honest, which is a good and healthy thing. So build on love. I mean, respect the church and the people as much as you can, but don't let anyone tell you that your current order is the way that it has to be, in particular if it's something that's hiding contradictions that lead to injustice. So be respectful, but feel the freedom to deconstruct. As John Caputo says, who's one of my very favorite theopoetic deconstructionists, the current order is the prevailing kingdom for which deconstruction is designed to instigate trouble. All right, well, as I mentioned, I recently was able to sit down with my friend, Tim Suttle, when I was thinking about deconstruction. Well, and uh, as a reminder, I was thinking about deconstruction because many of you people asked me about deconstruction. So when I was thinking about that, I thought, man, it'd be fun to talk about this with Tim because I knew that he's, uh, he's really interested in this kind of stuff. Um, he's an author and a pastor, and he's just finished his dissertation as well, though, um, I think he's still doing some editing. I hope he gets that done because I've read it and it's really good. It needs to be published and put out into the world. But here's a few seconds of my conversation with Tim, but then you can find the rest of it on my Patreon page. And and this is inescapable. And so so Derrida says everything, every every culture, every community, every belief system, this is where it comes into religion. So Christianity is a conditional reality and and which means it was constructed over time by particular people in cultural situations and those things can be the history of those things can be traced and thought through and um in a sense picked apart taken apart deconstructed that's that's my understanding of it and of course, then there are like there there are responses to this. The kind of conserving slash conservative response is to try to um, critique that to preserve. You know, con- conservative conserving these are synonyms or same root word. They're trying to preserve a system as it is. So that there is a conservative backlash to to um, deconstruction. The kind of liberating response is like you said it's a it's a fire like just fan the flame and let it burn things down the problem this is where this is where i definitely read derrida through um caputo the problem with the um kind of conserving response is it it becomes reactionary Mm -hmm. and he calls it death by rigidification you you become you build such a tight rigid system that it can't breathe you know living things go like this like dead things or go like that it's it there has to be some elasticity everything that lives changes grows dies is reborn so the kind of conservative response can cause that i mean it's it's the you see this even within the scripture when the priests don't listen to the prophets, everything breaks, you know? So um, the problem with the liberating response is, is demolition. It becomes reckless and, and aggressive and it often isn't really deconstruction because it's tearing things down 
before it understands how and why the, those things were built. And so a lot of times it, it tears things down and just jettisons things without doing deconstruction. Thanks to everyone listening and interacting. Please remember to leave a review and share the show. That is, if you liked it. Hold on, are you telling me some people don't like this? That just doesn't make sense.